Welcome to Christ Journey Church, and we welcome you, whether you're joining us here in South Florida or across the nation, around the world, uh, and especially if this is your very first time with us, because I know if you just saw a water balloon fight, you're wondering, what kind of church is this? And if I were you, I'd be wondering the same thing. But I have an answer. There is a meaning to our madness. This was a living illustration, a parable, a kind of metaphor in movement that our staff, all of those people are people from our staff. They wore their ministry t-shirts. Many of you volunteer in those areas. And um, what they want to show us was just a few things. Here's a couple of lessons from this experience. I'm going to try to redeem it, okay? Um, the first one is that, um, that ministry was meant for impact, contact, that brings impact. And, um, and that requires intensity of preparation. Did you see Angie and Rafa and um, Jeff put on their war paint? So hopefully you're feeling the intensity of the strength that they're bringing. Next, that can be messy. Ministry can be messy as God's higher splash fills our lives and makes contact with others, it tends to show up in messy ways and, um, and yet makes itself known. The third one is that we take our splash fun. Just because we're serious about it doesn't mean that we can't have fun. And um, in fact, Jesus said, I came that your joy might be full. And so we are the kind of church that enjoys one another being serious about making his higher splash of love show up even in our messes. And then finally, the bottom line for me would be this, that God's intention is that our, when contact is made, impact is felt. You're waving at me saying, lay this one down. Oh, look at there. Okay. Told you they were awesome. Um, and so far... The title of this message is Higher Love. The title of the series is Culture Splash. And here's what we've talked about so far. God's higher love, making impact, having contact in the mess of our lives that shows up in life-giving ways as we make contact one with another. And, um, and today, so far in our journey through Paul's letter, what we've seen is an unprecedented act of reconciliation where God in Christ has brought all the pieces of a broken world, a broken race, broken ethnicities together at the cross and then through the resurrection has created, given birth to a new humanity, to a new community, a universal community, capital C Church. That's what Paul is trying to help us wrap our minds around. Christ's body on earth. And then we saw ourselves seated in the heavenlies with this sublime positional truth in Christ, but not for long because then a seeming ridiculous thing happens. The body of Christ takes this huge leap into the mess we're in, makes a splash, a kind of cannonball uh, from heaven into the cultures of a fallen world where the splash of his love can reach as many as possible and make them soaking wet with opportunity to taste the living water and let it change their lives with truth about God. And we learn this truth about God, that God is not removed and aloof from the messes of our lives, from the mess we're in, but that God chooses to make himself known to us through people. 
people who are image bearers being redeemed into his likeness. Now, this is the amazing part of the good news. This is like jaw-dropping perspective. Though we can't save ourselves from the disease, death, and destruction of sin and evil, God has to do that for us. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and he does it through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He forgives our sin freely. He frees us from the penalty of our sin and the power of our sin. But God's original plan to give oversight to this world through human beings has not been rescinded. That's where he's taking us. In fact, God is using his being redeemed ones in the church. This is the point of the letter. He's keeping us in the world that we might grow to live from our position over the world as overcomers in Christ and then show it in the world. So not only overcoming nature, but also the supernatural forces that originally led our race astray. Now that's a lot. That's a lot to think about, but it's a genius plan. And it, it, um, it's what's behind keeping Christ's body, his church, in the strong man's house, this world under the deceiving influence of the evil one. And then, showing us how to trust Christ as our stronger man and then reign in us and become overcomers through him. This is what the letter's about. Spiritual overcomers growing to full redemptive potential as forgiven, spirit-filled representatives of God and his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now I know that's a lot and I don't know if you've ever thought of your life in those terms, but that's my understanding of why you're not in heaven yet from God's perspective. That's my understanding of why there are churches like ours in the world, of why there is a church on earth still 2,000 something years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and why Christ Journey Church has been a part of this part of world culture since 1926, why? Well, it's a big deal. God is making himself known through people that are in the mess, but he's calling us to become overcomers and help others find their way as well. And it's a big deal. But also, you already know this too, it's complicated. It's complicated. Though we are enlivened in the spirit, immediately in Christ, soon as you receive Christ, his spirit comes alive in you, you are born again of the spirit of God. But then we grow gradually over time. We come alive immediately, but we grow gradually. Our soul's diseases, are healed as our lives are sanctified. That's a Bible word for it. Justification happens immediately. We are no longer um, under judgment from our previous sins. It's justified just as if I'd never sinned. But sanctification is a process. What that means is we don't all of a sudden um, outgrow our inner turmoil or the conflict that we have with sin. We're saved from the penalty of our sins instantly when we receive Christ, but we're saved from the power of our sin through the process of sanctification. That's part of what culture splash is. How does it happen? Well, I recently saw a survey published by Lifeway Research on how Americans view sin. Said 67% of us say we're sinners. 8% say sin doesn't exist, there's no such thing. 10% say, no, I'm not a sinner. And 15% say, I'd rather not say. Yeah, I get that. I'd rather not say too. 
<laughs> but here's the thing. We find ourselves, wherever you are in the chart, we find ourselves challenged with something pulling on us, call it temptation if you want, that is fighting us in the world. There are tests that must be passed. And guess what? That's our opportunity to do what Paul says, live lives worthy of your calling. The test is an opportunity to overcome and become an overcomer to make the splash, in other words, to make God's kind of choices with our days in our kind of lives. And first contact for the splash happens personally and usually in a community called church. But then it flows out from there in these concentric circles of higher love that are washing like waves uh, out from the center, the most positive kind of storm surge you can imagine, not with destructive water force, but with the life-giving force of higher love, the living water of Christ through us. Starts in your spirit. When you receive Christ as your savior, the first thing he does is re he births you again with life. Spirit life comes alive in you and then starts healing your soul, your emotional life, and your emotional diseases start yielding to his fruit of his spirit and then it presents through your body which is your access point to the world and guess what? As his healing and presence and salvation is showing up through you, it interfaces with others in relationship and splashes into the world which we call culture. And so what's higher love? What am I talking about? The splash of higher love? I'm talking about doing something uncommonly good for the common good. And that's where Paul is taking us next. Ephesians chapter five, verse 15 through chapter six, verse nine. And here it's all about the wash of higher love, the splash of higher love, offering something uncommonly good for the common good. And here Paul shows how that impact first splashes in church relating one to one another within the church body and the family, then into the human family, husband and wife, parent and child, and then it washes out into social life, into economic matters, which in that culture at that time had to do with slaves and masters. Now, some of these topics have controversy tied to them and we'll deal with it when we get there. But first, the first splash is within church. And here's what he says to those of us that are part of the church. Verse 15, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. You know, the world's in a mess. Don't be foolish, but understand what God's will is. And don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence to Jesus Christ. Now, if you're listening, and if you're like me, then you're pretty good with all of that except that last phrase. Submit to one another. You know, we typically don't like to submit to anyone, do we? You mean, you hit the submit button and so I just want to choke. It's like somebody says, submit, Bill, and I say, who's going to make me? That's a, one of my first thoughts. Who's going to make me? Who made you the boss of me? You know, you and who else? Submit, what are you talking about? And maybe that's why then Paul in the same passage says to people like me, be, give careful thought to how you live because the tendency when you hear a word like that is to react, and Paul is saying, now don't react, but think. Give careful thought. 
And so that's what I'd like to invite you into. Next, he gives us a careful thought list. Seven B's about relating to others within the church. How to relate to others in the church. Here's the first one. Be careful. Be careful. That means you see everybody as a handle with care sign. So we just take care of one another. We be careful with one another. Be careful. Then be wise. Make the most of every opportunity. Your life is short. Don't waste it. You know, use it wisely. How do I do that? Well, be thoughtful. Seek understanding of God's will because God's will can make a big splash through you in your world. Be spirit-filled. Yield all that you know of yourself to everything you know about God from within. Be worshipful. That means speak worship. You know, we're a multilingual church. So was the church in Ephesus of its day. But the language that we all have in common is love for God language. That's what worship is. We speak love for God around here. And we speak it with each other. He says, so you sing, you make music, you offer psalms and hymns. You know, we let God's love inform our conversations. That's that one. That's God's higher love language. And then he says, be thankful in everything. Give thanks to God the Father through the Son. That's a familial understanding of taking time to say thank you to one another. And then he says, be humble. Or the word, the choke word, submit. But it comes in as the flow, the spillway from all of the other experiences within the body of Christ. And then he finally says, now treat one another with humility. And by the way, submit here doesn't mean be a doormat. Doesn't mean let people walk on you. It doesn't mean that you're not gonna disagree or hold a differing conviction. What it means is that you are making room for others. It means be humble, subordinate your rights to make room for others to have theirs. He's calling for a decision. You make a willful choice to, uh, to subject yourself to somebody else. It's like saying this, I'm gonna make space for you in my space. That's what submit means. I'm gonna make space for you in my space as you make space for me in yours with respect, with courtesy. Another way that we say it around here is disagree without dishonoring. Now, when you bring as many people from as many places in the diversity that we represent and that the book of Ephesians represents, you're gonna bump into somebody who doesn't see everything the same way you do. And so one of the ways we say that around here is we're gonna disagree without dishonoring one another. We're gonna make space for people to have their space in our space. And so church is a place where we learn how to do that. This is what Paul's thinking, to speak the truth in love, which means that one way we can do that is to say, you know, I don't think I disagree with what I hear you saying, or I don't think I agree with what you're saying, but I can understand your point. There's a way to make room for one another, even in disagreement. And the, commu the new community is where we're supposed to learn how to do that. We've said it before, you don't have to see eye to eye to walk hand in hand. Or say it another way, you don't have to be in the same car, traveling at the same speed, in the same lane, to be going the same direction. That we can give each other several lanes to travel in, but while we're understanding and respecting our diversity in Christ's community. And listen, that's part of our witness to the world. Part of the splash that a church can make in culture is say, how do they do that? How can they have such community in such 
diversity, how can they disagree without dishonoring one another? And then verses 22 through 33 says, as this splash washes over our groups, our serving teams, the other places where you might find yourself bumping into a disagreement, but choosing to say, I'm going to behave honorably in this, then Paul says, you know what else? That really ought to wash over into our homes. And the first place he takes it in relating is husbands and wives. And here we bump into some controversy. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he's the savior. Now as Christ submits to or as church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Man, I'm so excited about preaching this verse. It's one of my wife's favorite verses <laughs> in the whole Bible. Not quite. Um, but listen, context really matters here. Context matters. That means where does it fit in the flow of the paragraph and the thought and in word meanings really matter here. So what I'm saying is um, before we jump to a conclusion about what this means and how it applies in the 21st century, it would be good first to ask how was it heard in the first century? And the answer is in the context of God's love splash. The way that this ever got written into the letter was right after Paul said, now you know what? Now, in verse 21, he says, all of you should be living with respect and courtesy, making space for one another in your space. You should submit to one another. And then he says, and then wives to your husbands. In, uh, in verse 22, the word submit doesn't even show up there. It, the force is borrowed from verse 21. which applies to every church member, not just females, males, not just wives, husbands. He says, all y'all live making space for one another in your space. And then he says, now, when it take, when, I need you to take this home with you, wives to your husbands. Now remember, remember, submit doesn't mean be a doormat, doesn't mean be walked on, doesn't mean you can't hold a differing opinion and conviction. It doesn't mean that you can't disagree, but you're not going to dishonor one another. That's what we all just talked about, right? It means you voluntarily make space in your space. It means you make room for another's rights. Wives are to do that at home. Now you're already wondering, well, what about the husband? Okay, we're gonna get to that next, but Paul offers a little background color first. As to the Lord, he says. As to the Lord. Now that's interesting. In its context, here's what, it, here's what I'm understanding it to mean. A wife's submission to her husband isn't expected because of the power cultural norms that are being forced upon her and women who were seen as inferior to males, which was the case in first century culture. Jewish culture, Greek culture, Roman culture, women were inferior. That's how they viewed. Culturally, wives were treated as conveniences, possessions. No rights, no choice. And yet here, look what Paul's doing. I mean, first, he calls them out. Wives, when were they ever called by name in a public gathering in a first century culture like that? No, you, you keep in the margins, you keep over there. No, he says, no, wives, that's new, just to call out wives. But here, what he does, he puts the act of submission as a choice that a Christian wife freely makes in her discipleship. It's a step of spiritual growth as a fellow disciple in the Lord with her husband. 
He's empowering the value, the dignity before God that she has. And I'm telling you, that value was non-existent in first century culture. What about verse 23? For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. That's also a bit controversial. And if you interpret head to mean boss over, then you can see why we're choking on it in the 21st century, right? But I'm telling you, in first century culture, that's not a problem for anybody. That's just the way it is. That's already the fact. That's conventional wisdom. Yeah, the husband's the boss over, but is that what Rabbi Paul meant? I don't think so. Men were the superior rank in the pecking order in culture and social life of that day, in Jewish life, Greek life, and Roman life. But is that what Rabbi Paul's meaning? No, I don't think so. Why would I say that? Well, Paul would know that the word head that he used here, kephale, does not primarily mean authority over. You know what it means? Source of. Source of. It's like a fountainhead a spring that is the head of a stream. And so a fountainhead that is bubbling with water springs downward and gives life to the whole stream. The source of origin is the primary term, and as it flows, it provides life downstream. Now, it makes sense to me that Rabbi Paul, who would be familiar with the creation story, would say, oh yeah, and you know, early in the story, from Adam, God put Adam to sleep, took his rib, and made a woman for him. Adam was the source of her life. And so what he's saying is, hey husbands, we're going to rewind the story all the way back to before sin ever had us, and you are to see yourself as a source of life from which your wife flows. And then he says this, just as Jesus Christ is head of the church, you know what, the church came into being from Christ and through Christ. If there was no Christ, there would be no church. It's the same illustration that he's saying again. Christ is the spring from which the stream of church has now come. And he said it in chapter two, chapter three, now again in chapter five. <laughs> and then it becomes even more clear that that's what Paul was meaning when he talks about how husbands are supposed to model Christ for their wives. He says Christ is there for, to save. You should see your role the same way, to save life, to give life, to source life to lay your life down as required so that your life can give life to another. Isn't that what he says in context? Isn't that the flow of the thought? Yes, it is. It doesn't say, and husbands, be sure to boss over your wives. Now, he could have said that, but instead, he used the primary definition of the word, and then he illustrates it again, again, and again. Let your life be a life-giving source to your wife and your marriage. Now, that's a new thought for Romans and Greeks and first century Jews. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Agape is the word. Just as Christ agaped the church and gave himself up for source of life. Verse 21, verse 21 says this. Okay, all believers, pay attention. Submit to one another. Make room for each other. Voluntarily treat one another with courtesy and respect. And then he says, wives, in your marriage, you freely choose to do it, volunteering as a fellow disciple as to the Lord. You do this at home. Husbands, <laughs> you got to model after Christ so that you become a life-giving source to your marriage and what flows from it in agape love. Now tell me something. What marriage would not benefit 
if partners treated one another that way. Whether or not you agree with it or not, let me ask you, could your marriage benefit from that? God's kind of higher love. What's higher love? Oh, it's you doing something uncommonly good for the common good. Imagine doing something uncommonly good in your marriage for the common good of your marriage. Now that would be controversial in the first century, right? And in fact, it still is. Human nature would rather argue over who's boss. You're in my space. You, you know, you, you messed with me. Instead of what Christianity is doing here is opening up a new way of empowerment and equality where partners are treated with worth and dignity and liberty and responsibility that could respond and be responsible in love, higher love to one another. So wives, lead up in higher love to your husband. Husbands, lift up in higher love to your wife. And could I offer a pastoral word here? If your marriage partner doesn't know they're special, if what you're doing in your marriage doesn't cause them to feel special, what kind of marriage will you have? Well, I already know the answer. A less than special one. Is that right? I mean, it just kind of adds up, right? And yet here's what he, God is saying. God wants every marriage in following Christ to have his special love splashing into it. And this is a tsunami of culture splash that flows from the good news of God's love. For men, it'll change your life. For women, it'll change your life. And for kids too. In first century Roman culture, the father's power was absolute over his family. Children were his possessions. I mean, father could work them as hard as he wanted. He could sell them as slaves if he wanted. And he could punish them as he wanted, even inflict the death penalty. First century culture. People in our culture argue that it's a woman's right whether the child being formed in her body has, gets to have a future. But in first century culture, it was dad's right to determine that, even after the child was born, that dad could make the decision to dispose of the child with impunity in the Roman Empire. And yet, look what Paul's doing here. <laughs> he actually calls kids out, expecting them to be listening as the letter is read, and he says, and children, when were they ever acknowledged in a culture? They're supposed to stay quiet and out of the way. And Paul says, no, 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 children, you got a part in this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. There's those magic words again. That makes this part of their disciple, their discipleship, for this is right. And then he ties it to God's desire to bless them with promise that will lead to a long life on earth. In other words, obedience is not a forced behavior based on the coercion of culture. He ties it to a free choice that's made in the Lord as an expression of a child's discipleship where parents are helping them grow. Now that's different. And you know what? Then he does this cannonball. Yeah. Gets everybody messy wet. And he says this, fathers, don't exasperate your kids, but bring them up in the Lord. That's basically saying, hey dads, think about your kids' feelings. Exasperation is a feeling of frustration and anger, and he's saying, dads, 
Dads, you're gonna have to show some emotional intelligence when it comes to your own children. <laughs> Wait a minute, Roman dads, Greek dads, yeah, Jewish dads, yeah, dad, I want you to think about how your kids are feeling and then take responsibility for raising them in the Lord. You be the family shepherd. Now that's a new thought. This is higher love, isn't it? This is doing something uncommonly good for the common good. And I'm thinking that fathers in the Roman Empire in Ephesus had probably never heard anything like that before. Wives have rights. Children have rights. Slaves, what about them? Oh, Paul goes, yep. Verse five through nine. He applies the higher love of God and splashes it in to the economic driver that the institution of slavery was in their culture. In Roman culture, Romans thought themselves above the indignity of labor. So practically all the work was done by slaves. They fueled the economic engine. 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Aristotle once said, a slave is a living tool. Use them, work them, you know. Here's what Paul says, slaves. Now think about that. In the church, he's calling them out. Where have they been given such acknowledgement in public? Slaves, obey your masters as slaves of Christ. There's that discipleship quotient again. In other words, freely choose to serve wholeheartedly as to the Lord, not as men. So in other words, he's saying, if this is where you find yourself in life, then do it as an act of discipleship, not in fear of cultural payback. And then look at this. He tells the masters, the slaveholders, to treat slaves as those sure to be held accountable. And he says, don't you know that you have a master in heaven? And he doesn't discriminate. In other words, you know what Paul's doing to the culture of slavery? He's telling every Christian slaveholder, he's saying, show some higher love and do something uncommonly good for the common good. These aren't tools, these are people, fellow disciples that are loved by God. Now, some of you, you know, it wasn't, you wanted Paul to go farther. I get that. Why didn't he go farther? Why didn't he take it down? It wasn't his intention to dismantle slavery as an institution, but I can tell you that the seeds that he planted there would grow to lead to its undoing. One of the great shames of human culture, of our race, is not only that slavery existed in virtually, in, in every ancient civilization on every continent, the records show us, but that it's still with us. In fact, some 21 million people in forced labor today. Now they're not bought and sold, but they are forced to serve in labor. 21 million, the reports say. And then if you add to that, those that were held captive, kidnapped, taken, and then forced into sexual slavery, the number climbs to 50 million people. 50 million people in our world, this very moment, experiencing Slavery, and you're wondering, well, don't, you know, don't make me feel guilty. Who are we? What can we do when it comes to something like that? And here's what I'd like to suggest. Maybe the answer is as simple as this. Live as to the Lord. In every case, that's what Paul said. Live as to the Lord. Cultural evils do not change all by themselves. They change as people change. And people change as they live as to the Lord. 
and we start treating other people when heaven's values are welcome to splash into our culture and individuals are treated as people with worth, with dignity, with rights, but also responsibility, with empowerment and equality that then calls us into a kind of freedom of choice that says, and your consequences will be your responsibility. Then culture splash is taking place. What kind of world do you want to live in? What kind of marriage do you dream of? What kind of family would you long for? What kind of church are you hoping this church will become? What kind of culture, what kind of city would you like to have? What's your part in it? Well, I think the answer is always this, your next decision, your next behavior. Will it only be about you? Will you live as to what you want in your space or will you live as to the Lord and make space for others for what? For higher splash so that through you something uncommonly good could happen for the common good. And guess what? Your life could be impacting eternity. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way you model this for us. We thank you for the way your love and your spirit is still alive in us, for how you have chosen not to forsake us in the mess where we find ourselves, but to actually redeem us and cause us to find overcoming strength in you, that through us, the splash of your higher love can do something uncommonly good for the common good of our marriages, our families, our economy, our world. So we welcome you to have your way with us today and then to move through us to help make for a better world. And friend, if you're here and would like to know how can I taste the living water and get started on my spiritual journey, then I'm gonna offer a brief prayer you can join me in if you'd like. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Give me the birth of spirit that you promised. Forgive my sins. Fill me with your spirit. And I now turn from my way to follow you that your higher love could splash through me as I make my prayer in your name. Now our heads still bowed just for a moment, but if you prayed to ask Christ to come into your life with me and would let me ask God's blessing upon your next steps of faith, would you simply raise your hand wherever you're seated? If you're joining us online, there's an orange banner that you can click on there. Right here in the back toward in the center, God bless you. I'm seeing your hand over to my far right against the aisle and then right down front to my right, God bless you. Anyone else? Lord Jesus, for every hand that's raised and every heart that's opened, we pray that the splash of your love would bring joy and peace, the knowledge of forgiveness and the presence of your spiritual life as we make our prayer in your name, amen.